17. Nan could not recall her dream when she awoke the following morning. No memory of any definite visions or experiences troubled her, only a sense of longing and fear. She did not delve any further into the sensations, but left sampling the nightmares for when she slept. As Nan was dressing, she could hear footsteps tramp down towards her father's bedroom, and a few moments later they tramped back again. There was a knock on her door and Sally Croucher came in to inform Nan that her father was awake. Phil don't expect too much from him at the moment, Sally added. He's extremely weak and will be in the healing canvas for a good while yet. I'll bring breakfast up to you. Nan could not dress fast enough and ended up shouting at her clothes, which seemed to be conspiring to hinder her from seeing her father. Then she tore down the archway corridor into Russell's room and from there into the healing canvas itself. Norbert was in the canvas as well, but Nan had eyes only for her father, who smiled weakly at her. It was just as Nan bent down to kiss him that she noticed the weight he'd lost made Russell look twenty years older. Hello, Hanamana, he whispered exhaustedly. Been good? Usual, Nan replied with tears in her eyes. You? Usual. And with that, the furrows on his brow fell away, his eyelids slipped shut, and Russell sank back into sleep. It was as if he had remained awake in order to see that his daughter was truly well and thriving. With that done, he now allowed sleep to carry him away. Your father first came round in the middle of the night, Norbert informed her in hushed tones. We were going to get both of you and Tristan, but he told us to let you sleep. The first, absolutely the first thing he asked after was all of you. On hearing that all his children were in fine fettle, he slipped back into unconsciousness and has been coming in and out of it ever since. Russ has also managed to swallow a little tomato soup. Dad looks ancient, said Nan. That will change too, Nan, Norbert reassured her. Your father has lost a considerable amount of weight and Russell was not a big man anyway, so he did not have much to spare. Also, you must understand that all of his body's resources have gone into reclaiming those lost parts of himself. Now he's nearly whole again, his body will start strengthening itself. Dr Beamish said he should recover well. Nan did not reply, but brushed away some matted hair from her father's eyes and tucked it back into his head bandage. Norbert continued, Between us, Adrian and I have briefed Russell about what happened to him when the sisters attacked, as well as the phenomena of the canvas. But... As you know, it's hard to take in at the best of times, so Lord only knows how much of it he's really understood. How does he seem to you? Nan asked. Oh, same old Russell, replied Norbert, and then stopped himself. No, not the same old Russell. To be honest with you, Nan, he seems sadder and older than the Russell we knew before. There's no cure for it. I suspect no amount of care and attention will change him back to the way he was. I guessed as much, she replied softly, as she stroked her father's face. 
Tristan entered the canvas with a plate of toast and handed it to Nan. Sally told me to give you this. Dad's awake, Trist, said Nan. Well, at least he was awake. I know. I've already spoken to him, replied Tristan. Nan, can I have a quick word with you outside? Excuse us, Bert. Nan was reluctant to leave her father, but was also curious to find out what he might have said to Tristan, and so she hurried out after her brother. Tristan did not seem content with talking in Russell's bedroom, but led his sister out into the archway corridor. After checking that no one was around to hear them, he spoke to Nan. For some reason, you no longer like the company I keep here, and I sure as hell don't care much for your new friends, who don't even deserve to be called gobbers, as far as I'm concerned. But in front of Russ, everything's fine between us. Agreed? We don't give him the slightest opportunity to worry about us, or cause him concern. Agreed? Anger rose up within Nan, but she could not tell whether it was directed at her brother or herself. Agreed, she mumbled. When the Elliot twins strolled back into the healing canvas to find their father awake again, they looked the best of friends. So, Russ, you've turned into a bit of a hero, I hear, Tristan started. Strange that I've become a celebrity in this town for losing a fight. With a bit of practice, I'm sure I could lose more. What have you two been up to? asked Russell in his slow, croaky whisper. School mainly, Dad, Nan answered. And you know what, Russ? They even play rugby to a reasonable level here. You should have seen Nan play. It was heroic. A bona fide back if ever I saw one. She almost scored. Tristan appeared to be a tonic for Russell, and he attempted a grin at his daughter. <laughs> well done. And how's art, Nan? Fine. Good. Yes. Yeah. Very good, Nan replied. She's exceptionally talented, Norbert added. Caused quite a stir with her still life of a chicken, I can tell you. Yeah, it's strange, Dad. Gives you a different perspective on art when you see what it can do here, you know? But Russell did not want to talk about the incredible canvas. And you've made good friends, he continued. Mm-hmm, the twins mumbled together, not wishing to lie to their father directly. How's Toby? asked Russell. He's fine, Russ, answered Tristan. Toby only got a few bruises. You came off worse in the fight with the sisters. But Russell did not want to talk about what had happened to him either. And you've written to your mother, of course. The question completely wrong-footed the twins, and they could not hide their guilty looks. All the new experiences of Wanish Limpley had driven the thought of contacting their mother clean out of their minds. Nan! Tristan! Their father scolded them in the first tones he had used that had been above the level of a whisper. I need to rest now. Don't come back to see me. Not until you've written to your mother. Give the letters to Norbert. Understood? Yes, Dad. Sure, Russ. Due to the attack in Shakespeare's Globe, the whole class was excused attending school that day. The official reason was to allow the children to recover, when in actual fact it was to allow Alderman Boxer to restore his nerve. Therefore, a little while later in the lounge area of the painted pilchard, Nan and Tristan were sat at the same table with enough time on their hands to try and compose letters to their mother. They chewed on their pens, held their heads in their hands, counted how many seagulls flew past the window, watched children beachcombing along the shoreline, but the words would not come. The most important things that had happened to them in Wanish Limply and all the things their mother would really want to know about were the very things they could not tell her. Eventually, 
and they decided on writing a joint note on the back of a postcard that Toby found behind the bar. The postcard was from the theatre shop and depicted a canvas that had clearly been the backdrop to some Scandinavian or Russian play set in a snowy city about 100 years ago. On it, they wrote, Dear Mum, we're both enjoying Wanish Limply very much and have made good friends. They did not want to elaborate on the fact that their friends were not the same groups at the moment. Hartley seems to be enjoying himself too and at night sleeps. Well, like a baby. Must be the sea air. There's more to do here than we first imagined and school is good. My art's improved a lot. Not much more to tell you other than we do miss you. Love, Nan and Hartley. P.S. Emma. Went on a savage school trip yesterday to see Shakespeare. Not what we were expecting at all. I've only been involved in three fights so far, and I didn't start any of them, as always. Rugby's reasonable here. Hope you're surviving the Drews. Love, Trist. Once the postcard was finished and the twins had visited their father who'd gone to sleep again, Tristan rushed out of the inn to meet Toby and Cayman at the Havoc Brothers. Nan gave the card to Norbert and decided to spend the rest of the afternoon playing with Hartley. Down on the beach, Nan sat watching Hartley explore the rock pools. She had taken out the sheets of paper that were intended for her mother's letter, but began sketching her little brother with them instead. In the same way that Eurydice the chicken had been stripped to the bone for Nan's picture, Hartley's sketch began as a stick figure, then a whole series of overlapping shapes forming into a body. Nan did not have the heart to draw her brother's skeleton and muscles, but dived straight into sketching the details of the little boy. After 15 minutes, she had a drawing of her younger brother that was incredibly accurate and even in pencil brought the toddler to life. Damn, you're good, Nan. She allowed herself a compliment. I bet Adrian couldn't match this. Adrian? He'd been in her dream. It was the same nightmare as the night before, but not quite the same one. A cottage she had never known and someone searching through notes and pictures. Fear and satisfaction battled for control in the mind of the searcher. Then, through the wall, came the jet of colour in the shape of a man. The searcher hid in the shadows and saw the figure of Adrian Elliot with a number of different items under his arm. Something sent the searcher into a panic and they looked around frantically for escape. And there, on the wall, was the answer. Sketches of a family decorating a door frame leading to an unremarkable home and through a door a dull, ordinary, familiar room with a cot and some beds. Nan was just about to grasp its significance when the memory of the dream faded before she could pick out any details. So, Nan thought, I've begun to dream the same nightmare, a continuing nightmare. But for the life of her she had no idea of its meaning. Picking up Hartley, Nan walked back up through the archway. The painted pilchard was heaving with people, so Nan took Hartley up to see their father. Russell was improving by the hour. He was now sitting up in bed, slowly spooning soup into his mouth and taking the occasional bite from toast spread with honey. The bandages irritated him, but he was too weak to undo them. Hello, my darlings, he said as they entered. Hartley gurgled with delight and stretched out his arms to hug his father. Russell allowed his baby son a brief embrace and then asked Nan to take him back because he felt too feeble to hold Hartley. There's one hell of a racket next door, Russell said, more as a comment than a complaint. Expect you've heard about some other poor souls who were attacked yesterday? Not by these sisters who attacked me, but an attack is an attack. He inhaled and the breath mutated into a yawn. Oh, here many in the community have decided enough is enough. 
Nan decided not to tell her father that she'd been among the poor souls who'd been attacked, as it only would have panicked him. But that doesn't concern us, Dad, because we're leaving, aren't we? I've been thinking about that, said Russell, putting down his spoon with care. Adrian and Norbert have been talking to me about my role here, and I have to say, it's going to sound strange, but I'm tempted. More than tempted, Nan. I don't know how to explain it. But through all that's happened to me in the few days I've been here, I feel at home. For the first time, I feel I belong, you know? I opened my eyes last night and I was relieved to find I was still here. Relief, Nan. I think the experience has changed me. If they'll have me, I wouldn't mind trying out as a caretaker. What do you think? Nan could not believe what she was hearing. Her father had clearly taken leave of his senses. The sisters must have damaged him more profoundly than anyone first thought. Dad? You almost died an awful death. How can you think of staying here? You don't like it here, Nan? He replied. Well, yes, I do. Like you, I feel at home here. But the sisters might kill you next time, Dad. I didn't know what I was dealing with before, Nan. I do now. Maybe that's better, maybe it's worse. I don't know. But I do know that most people will never see Wanish Limply, and many that do call it impossible. Step back, Nan, and consider how privileged we are simply to be here. Here, in a place where imagination is the culture and the currency, where imagination is prized as a thing of value and not just dismissed as a thing for children to dream. As for the danger, well, no place as incredible as this can exist without something threatening it. I saw it with an outsider's eyes before Nan, and with an outsider's fear of the strange and the new. Now I see it for the wonder it is, and I wish to stay. If you think I have any desire to go back to face salaries, mortgages, promotions and pensions, and all the other million things that stifle us adults, think again. Tristan's keen to stay, and my mind's set. You think on it. Nan stayed in her room for the rest of the day. The tension from the last few days felt as if it had joined forces with all the anxiety and worry to form a dull throb at the place where her spine joined the skull. As she lay on her bed, Nan tried to ignore the ache at the back of her head by focusing on the rhythms of the pub and the patterns in the voices that came murmuring faintly from the floor below. In the mid-afternoon, Nan could detect that the pub appeared to drain of people, leaving only those who were not governed by schedules of work and domestic duty. An occasional bout of rattling laughter would explode downstairs and almost immediately become a fit of coughing as Captain Mace realised there was a price to pay for his smoking and wretched jokes. Sometimes there was the dim rise and fall of two familiar voices as Beryl and Reenie chewed out all the fat from some subject and then returned to silence and drinking. Others remained as well, but Nan could make out the identity of very few voices until the inn began to draw people back to it in the early evening. Tristan's raucous laughter announced itself suddenly, flanked on either side by Toby's incessant chatter. Without opening her eyes, Nan could hear the boys stomping up the stairs. She felt relieved that they did not call on her, although she guessed the long loping stride that stuttered to a halt outside her door represented Cayman's concern for her. Then he too moved into Tristan's room and Nan filtered out their voices to concentrate on the people entering the pilchard. There was now no way to pick out individual voices in the bar, but as more and more people entered through the front door or the gateway canvas, Nan found she needed only the briefest snippets of conversation to distinguish if it was someone she knew or not. The measured, even tones of Cat Sanderson soon drifted up and a chill ran up Nan's spine, aggravating her already fragile head. Then, 
she had a moment's clarity as she recognised first Norbert's warm, inefficient speech, followed by Adrian's deep, succinct responses. At that moment, Tristan, Toby and Cayman clattered down to the bar, pausing to greet the three caretakers who were making their way upstairs to see Russell. When they passed Nan's door, Kat Sanderson clearly inquired after her, but Nan could not make out Norbert's reply. I think it's best I wait downstairs, Norbert, whispered Kat. She asked me not to go near her father. We should respect that. Norbert uttered some protest, but there was no mistaking the sound of light footsteps heading down once more. Adrian did not seem to spend more than a minute or two with his brother before he left again, stopping halfway down the stairs leading to the bar. You should not go alone, Norbert appealed to his friend with a whispered bark. What I should have done is that I should have started these days ago, said Adrian in reply. In all honesty, part of me knew it already and part of me balked at the idea. No time for sentiment now. If the canvas takes, I know it's unlikely, but if he knew anything, I will find it out. To the theatre for me. You should not be alone. I'll come with you. I can be of assistance to you in any number of ways, continued Norbert, in a voice loud enough to be heard by half the bar. Norbert, please! The caretakers cannot chaperone each other everywhere like shy lovers. You'll only draw attention to our attempt. No, you do better to stay here and divert the focus away from my absence. For how many days, Adrian? I'm afraid my entire selection of jokes and stories will barely last half an hour. The canvas will take you longer than that, maybe a lifetime. Do what you must, old friend, replied Adrian. A few seconds later, Nan peered out of her window and saw Adrian pick his way along the shoreline and out into the darkness. While the discussion between Adrian and Norbert had been going on, Nan's headache had remained a dull pulse at the place where her spine joined her skull and she had been able to follow the debate. Now the voices had stopped, the pain began to run rampant through her head, as if ready to cleave her skull in two. It was as she was about to get undressed to get into bed that Nan suddenly felt a new pain spring up in her chest. Feeling inside her clothes, Nan saw that in her haste to get dressed this morning, she had inadvertently put Adrian's photograph against her skin rather than in her shirt pocket. She gently peeled the photo off like a scab, but the sweat and heat of her body had ruined the image, so now she recognised neither of the distorted forms that represented herself or her mother and the red blemish had left a dot like a bead of blood on her skin. Nan did not dwell on this, though, because the hammering within her skull was making her head nod in pain with each blow until it came to rest on the bed and she fell unconscious. How's the new batch of sequoia sap? Cat inquired in the bar of the pilchard. Oh, proper handsome pint, replied Gilbert. I'm also trying a new recipe for a brew with a lot of fruit flavours in it. What have we decided upon, Tobe? Bananas, mainly, Dad. Bananas, yeah. Magnificent drop. Dark as the night and slips down smoother than an oyster. Thinking of naming it Havoc Heaven or Van Dieven's Dilemma. Eh, Van Dieven? Call it a glass of ass for all I care. A clatter from the latch at the far end of the bar and Norbert shuffled in, sighing as he slumped down onto the bar stool next to Cat Sanderson. How are you, Norbert? she asked. Oh, we're such a young community cat, he replied softly. Infants stumbling through the dark, praying for the dawn and a bit of illumination, but we have no idea what we're doing or where we're going. 
Cat smiled a consoling smile. What else would we do? You know, there are organisations that paint watercolours in the countryside, declared Norbert more loudly as Cat snorted with mirth. Why couldn't we be one of those? Why did we have to take up a living canvas and all the danger it entails? We might have been happy doing landscapes in watercolour or sculpture or photography or perhaps we should have learnt to dance the salsa. We can still learn to salsa, Cat replied amused. You used to do photography, didn't you, Bert? began Tristan, recalling the photograph album his mother had almost shown him in Quell Terrace and immediately remembering he was not supposed to mention anything about them. He tried to cover his tracks. I mean, I think he used to. So did Russ and Adrian. No, you're mistaken there, Tristan, Norbert informed him. I can remember Russell taking up photography. I dabbled with it in my youth and I've never seen Adrian with a camera, though. Adrian prefers pictures or sketches. He won't have photographs anywhere near him, claiming they lack soul or spirit. All except the one he took of Nan and Emma, then. Adrian's never owned a camera, Tristan. Norbert turned to his colleagues. Have you ever seen Adrian take a photo? The other caretakers shook their heads. It's bona fide, Bert. I can prove it to you, claimed Tristan, glad of the diversion this conversation was offering him. Nan's got a photo of Emma and herself from Adrian, received it on the day Emma left home. Cat Sanderson turned towards Tristan with interest. You mean the day the Conquistadors attacked? The Conquistadors? replied Tristan. What are you talking about? It doesn't matter, said Cat dismissively. What makes you think the photograph was taken by Adrian? Uh, because it said Uncle Adrian is coming? Or something like that on the back? Might it have been a painting? asked Norbert. It has to be a photo, exclaimed Tristan, because no painting's that good, that detailed. There was silence. It was the sort of flooding silence where so many questions and exclamation marks clog up the space, where noise isn't, that nothing flows and nothing is said at all for a while. Norbert was the first to find his voice. Nan has this, you say? Tristan nodded. Has your sister ever said anything seems peculiar about this photograph? asked Cat, an earnest quality in her voice. Now that you mention it, Nan says that Nan in the snap keeps changing somehow. It's like every time she looks at it, the photo's never as she remembered it. Eyes widening, all fatigue forgotten, Norbert exchanged glances with Cat, and Tristan noticed that even Gilbert and Van Dieven were intrigued now. Oh, it couldn't possibly be, Norbert pleaded with Cat. Tell me it's out of the question. Cat Sanderson leant in towards Tristan. Where does Nan keep this picture, Tristan? Mm, in one of her pockets, I think. Not sure. All I know is that Nan always has it on her. Oh, Lord, no, cried Norbert. We've made a hideous mistake. Tristan, if you've ever loved your sister, tell me this, said Cat, in as calm a voice as she could muster. Have you ever noticed any marks or blemishes on the image itself? You might think they're faults in the photograph. Think now. No. You're certain? There are none, other than that red spot thing in the corner. All four of the caretakers sprang towards the door and rushed upstairs to Nan's room in the archway. Alarmed by their reaction, Tristan and Toby were hot on their heels. 
The irregular crash of something slamming in Nan's room was the first indication that something was wrong. In a second, Kat Sanderson had flung open the bedroom door and the sea wind hit them in gusts as the open eye window, swinging freely on its hinges, slammed shut and then swayed open and slammed shut again with the gusts. Nan was nowhere to be found, even when they peered out of the window. In a single moment, the caretakers took all this in and then sprinted back downstairs and out of the inn itself. What does it mean? Tristan begged Toby as they hurried behind. What's so important about the red mark? Trist, a red mark with a web of lines crisscrossing. It's the signature of the white boy. That's no photograph. Nan woke up from the cold once again. She'd fallen asleep in her clothes, which meant that at least she was not about to freeze to death. But the chill blast off the sea, bit deep through her garments and into her skin. The ache in her head still slowly drummed away, too. It took only a moment for Nan to realise she had completed her longest sleepwalk yet and was now on Dab Island. Away over the sloping curve of the island's hill, she could make out the lights of Wanish Limpley and even the causeway, which was just beginning to sink beneath the waves like the immense body of some diving sea serpent. Nan had been on this side of the island before, when she'd unmasked Cat Sanderson, but she'd also felt a deeper familiarity with the place. It was as if there was some element she recognised in the coarse grass and the clump of stunted trees that stood a little distance up the hill and the group of stones only a few feet away from her. Almost immediately, she recalled the morning picture in the forbidden section of Norbert's rooms. Nan realised now that it was not moorland at all, but the island sea-savage scrub. In the painting there had been lights among the trees, although nothing shone there now, but amid the stones was the same hole in the earth. She was about to explore it when a door slammed further down the hill. Not far away lay a cottage, and striding impatiently out of the door was Adrian Elliot, heading out onto a path that led towards the south side of the island. Instinctively, Nan began to follow him, but with the feeling that it was best that she was not seen. She'd gone no more than a few yards before she found her way impeded by an invisible force, and Nan guessed she'd come up against the immense canvas barrier. Nan knew what she was looking for now, so she veered off the path and quickly located another well-hidden stone archway that was the only route beneath the barrier. Adrian's cottage lay outside of the barrier canvas, and Nan had to hurry after her uncle, who was marching away with a clear purpose, never bothering to turn round. The combination of the cold February night and her throbbing head must have caused the illusion, but Nan could have sworn that as she passed the porch lantern of Adrian's cottage, the reflection in the window showed something with piercing white eyes to be staring back from the dark. She spun around, but there was nothing there. Adrian continued south, never suspecting that his niece was following him in the shadows. No more than a minute or two later, Adrian was outside the theatre and heading straight into the extravagant building. Even in the finger-numbing cold, Nan waited for a moment to check no one else was around and then swiftly stalked into the theatre herself. Quickly clambering up the stairs, Nan entered the auditorium to see it was in much the same state as on the night when the twins had first discovered the secret. Fewer canvases cluttered up the room and the few that remained had been placed on the seats, but on the whole the scene was very similar. Adrian was in exactly the same position as when they'd first seen her on that night too, but was stood in front of a smaller blank canvas. Suddenly, Adrian's eye was caught by something in one of the broad paintings. He held up a candle to examine the edges of the canvas, and then he stared back out into the auditorium, as if in two minds about his next course of action. 
No other caretakers were with him. Adrian looked very alone in front of the picture of a stormy skyscape, at the bottom of which lay a low, flat horizon. Eventually, Adrian put down the candle, checked his staff and took a moment to prepare himself and strode into the canvas. The sudden sensations Nan now felt overwhelmed her and she no longer felt in control of herself. The nerves in her face twitched as if tiny creatures were burrowing beneath her skin and her muscles convulsed violently. Somehow, through all the spasms that racked her body, she seemed to be dragging herself forward towards the canvas that was exerting a force like magnetism. It was not sleepwalking. Her mind was conscious and had given no command to move, but a force within her kept Nan's muscles working, and she did not have the strength to resist it. A few yards away from the canvas, Nan peered into the painting spread out before her, but could not see the image of her uncle within. The picture pulsed with an energy that seemed to draw Nan to it. She was beginning to wonder if there was something within the canvas that was controlling her. She was amazed to find herself picking up the candle Adrian had used. Nan could feel the scalding wax dripping down her hand, but not even her reflexes would release the candle from her grip. And now she looked on in shock as her arms stretched out to hold the flame to the canvas. Even in the state Nan was in, she was aware that to set fire to the canvas was to mean almost certain death for her uncle Adrian, so she marshalled all her strength of will to fight the urge and stop it happening. The force within Nan halted for a moment, leaving her breathing heavily and wondering if she had really beaten the power controlling her. But then she winced as the pain started again. Agony the like of which Nan had never known before shot through her, searing, acute. The very thought of screaming was too painful to consider. Her knees buckled and Nan knelt on the floor, her breaths hissing through clenched teeth. What was happening to her was truly astonishing, but the incredible, crippling agony left Nan a spectator on her own senses. All the colours in the picture appeared to be fleeing and then dissolving into the theatre and the other canvases. Figures and faces emerged and then reared up in the canvases and quickly sank back again, as if being suffocated by the material. Everything seemed clearer and more vivid than it was in reality, but there was also a hollowness to it all. It was as if the richness and brightness of the colours were disguising the fact that nothing had any substance. Nothing could be touched or smelt or tasted. Almost everything belonged to sight. No other senses but vision and hearing existed. After a few moments, Nan could sense colossal pressure build up at the front of her face and body. Her skin pores felt as if they were oozing molten metal. The wax-caked hand holding the candle relaxed its grip and the flame was nearly snuffed out as it bounced upon the stage. Many adults could not have suffered the agony Nan was experiencing. She was aware she could not hold on for much longer. Nan was certain the brief whiteout that followed would herald her fall into oblivion. But no. She had to endure the excruciating sensation of a small figure emerging from within her, from out of her, and it ripped itself free of her like a pupa forsaking its chrysalis. The figure, the white boy, turned to face Nan for an instant. She hardly saw his features. Nan was spent with blinding pain. There was the awful realisation that she had been possessed by him. He had been living inside her, as might a parasite inside its host. If she could have looked at him, Nan would have seen confusion and disorientation on the face of the white boy too. They were still joined at the left hand. He tugged at her, but the two hands seemed to be fused together. The white boy tugged again and Nan felt as if her entire core was being wrenched from out of her. 
A numbness and deathly chill were rushing up Nan's body, with a feeling like being plunged into icy water. But even though she was now nearly blinded, Nan fumbled for the candle with her free hand. The flame burnt her fingers, but Nan still managed to thrust it at the white figure's hand, at the place where they were joined together. A cry. More than one awful cry rang out in the theatre, though Nan heard them only distantly. Through her eyelids she dimly saw that the swirling colours turned dark and then into furious reds and yellows, and Nan waited for the white boy to finish her off. But there was no final blow. Finally, he tore himself free of her. Voices were getting nearer, but Nan only heard them as fainter and fainter. She guessed she'd lost her mind because one of the voices sounded like her Uncle Adrian, and that was not possible. Due to her failure to stop the white boy, she knew Adrian must be dead or about to die. Even through the drowning pain, she felt guilty about the death of her uncle. But that was the very last thing she did feel before Nan succumbed to the pain and knew no more. Mm -hmm.